I'm digging for feeling. And when I hit the feeling, that's when I get the shiver, kind of like sent a jolt through me. Something about writing the book made me realise that I needed a drastic change in my life. That's just called relating to people. And then maybe writers are the people who can't do that in a normal way and have to do it through writing things. She's like, this is quite personal, Amy. Are you, are you sure you want to publish this? It's a miracle to me that I've managed to finish anything, let alone now, like six books. Yeah, they exist, don't they? So I must have done them. <laughs> Welcome to In Haste. I'm Charlotte Runcy. And I'm Alice Vincent. In this series, we speak to brilliant authors about the challenges of writing their books and putting them out into the world. And we talk about the matter of writing when you have a real life to live. This is where we talk about how great books really get written. We're going to talk a lot about the business of publishing today and the mad roller coaster it can be, especially for a debut author. Today, we're speaking to Jenny Godfrey, a first time novelist, and she's one of those debut novelists who really has had the dream author experience. Her agent sent her novel, The List of Suspicious Things, out on submission to publishers, and it's sold in a preempt almost instantly. We should probably explain for anyone who doesn't know that a preempt is where publishers offer a large amount of money to buy the right to publish a novel because they want to take it off the table to prevent rival publishers from having a chance to bid. And that's what happened with Jenny. Alice, what was it like when you found out that your book was going to be published? Well, Charlotte, I was in a situation that I suspect you can picture perfectly because it was in the middle of the Telegraph newsroom where we both used to work. <laughs> no way. I felt my phone go and it was my agent calling. And weirdly, my book Rootbound sold in Germany before it sold in the UK. Oh, crazy. Yeah, it's really weird. And I got a preempt, like a really mad big preempt in Germany for a book that hadn't sold anywhere else yet and was written in English. And um, she was really excited because it was a bit of a mad thing to happen. But because I hadn't had any other book deals from being represented in that way before, I just thought this was really normal that you'd kind of sell all over the world before any English publisher yeah, would pick you up. that's not a normal thing to happen. <laughs> It's not It's not normal, but it was lovely. And I, you know, this must have happened at about 11am. So I just spent the rest of the day sort of floating around on a weird cloud uh, without actually any certainty that the book was ever going to be published in English. There is something special about the debut, isn't there? I think there's always, there's always a lot of buzz around new writers and lots of publishers sometimes get very excited about wanting to be the first to champion a new voice. So it does seem to be the case that if you do have this buzzy debut author experience, that is the one time in your career where you will suddenly feel like the most popular kid at school. <laughs> Everyone wants to It's nice be with. nerds. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Having never been the popular kid at school. Our time has come. Our time has come. Your time is coming because you are going to be a debut novelist in 2025. And yeah. therefore, you must have got some phone calls as well. Yeah. So my novel, my agent sent it out to editors at publishing houses. And she said, I don't know how long it's going to take to hear back, but we should have a sense of things within a week. But then after a week, we had an offer in the UK, which was, I would say, a modest offer. But it meant that my agent could then go out to other publishers and say, we've had one offer. Are you interested? Yes or no? And very quickly, it turned out that quite a few other publishers were interested and we were in an auction situation. And at that point, 
my agent sent the novel out in America as well. And then in America, things happened even more quickly. We had some very positive responses. And then the next morning, my agent rang me and I kind of, I started shaking all over because I was like, if she's ringing me the day after I've had all these meetings, this is, this is news. But I was just giving my kids their lunch. So I just like literally doled out some fish fingers on the table. And I was like, I'm just going to take this call. And I shut the door on my kids. My agent, Rachel, she said, are you sitting down? And I was like, no. And she said, well, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, we've had a preempt from one of the publishers and I was like oh my god wow this is amazing and I was like all set to take it and stuff and then I said what what should we do and Rachel said I think we should turn it down I was like what what how can you possibly want to turn it down but then she said no look there's other interest I don't think it would be in your interest to accept it at this stage so that was the most terrifying moment of my life because I'd gone from complete elation to yeah. terror, like possibly Raw fear, turning down this um, this opportunity, but it turned out to be the right decision because Rachel was was right, and we ended up going to an auction the following week. Casual auctions on either side of the Atlantic. Alice, you you very kindly sent me a box <laughs> of cherry brownies <laughs> because you, you yes, could tell I that I'd gone insane. <laughs> I do remember thinking it's acquisition week for Charlotte. You don't know if people are going to buy your book or not, and it's horrible it's like waiting for the person you've asked out at school to say yes or no mm-hmm. or like it's just horrible and little did I know that you've just got editors all over the place trying to buy your book but yeah I'm glad <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have sent them if you'd known the, the full story <laughs> I would have eaten them myself <laughs> for me this incredible success came on the back of the most awful failure so the book I had written a novel before that I was really proud of and my previous agent who I ended up parting ways with very amicably after this book didn't sell sent it out to editors and there was just a kind of resounding silence and I found out like my my agent told me that it was time to take it off the table um she told me that like a week after I'd given birth to my second child oh my goodness one of the lowest points Honestly, I I felt so low. I should have sent you the brownies then. Yeah, that was when... The, so they were belated brownies for that moment. <laughs> <laughs> but that was really depressing because that felt like such comprehensive failure on every possible front. But then keeping going, writing another novel and having the exact opposite experience was insane. I think we're all very glad that happened. <laughs> Well, the book hasn't come out yet, so we'll see. Anyway, something similar to our very, very lucky experiences happened to Jenny Godfrey, who we're going to talk to today. And we're going to ask her about all of this. Her debut novel, The List of Suspicious Things, is out this month. And it has caused a huge stir before it was even available to buy. It's featured on the BBC Radio 2 Book Club. There are adverts for it everywhere. It's just generally had a huge amount of buzz all around it. And... I think it's fair to say that's deserved because it really charmed both of us, didn't it, Alice? It really did. It was, I so enjoyed reading it. It was a real curl up on the sofa kind of number for me. It's about that moment in the late 1970s when the Yorkshire Ripper was on the loose and it tells the story of how the community responded to the murders. But the reason why it's cosy, which might seem like a strange word to associate with that subject matter is because it's told through the perspective of a 12-year-old who's called Miv, and she decides to try and solve the case for herself. I found myself being really sucked into Miv's narrative, and I thought what Jenny did so well was inhabit that life of 
kind of naive and quite troubled 12-year-old really convincingly. And through that lens, we managed to understand the people in this very tight-knit community and all of their problems. And she manages to balance a lot of issues and a lot of characters really deftly. And we do go on to talk about that. How did you find it, Charlotte? I found that this was amazingly warm, as you say, and even life-affirming in a way. Um, I think it's because there's so much time and care taken by Jenny to tell the human stories of a community that is devastated by a crime like the Yorkshire Ripper murder. Something so shocking happening right at the heart of the community. Everyone is under suspicion. This very, very tight-knit community is splintered by something so dark and so terrible. And it feels important because of that that Jenny herself actually does come from that community at that time. So there's an authenticity of the emotion there and real memory, real feeling that's gone into the book. And I think you can really tell that on every page. Um, I should say that I actually met Jenny on a novel writing course before the book was published. And it's been just the utmost privilege to follow the journey of her book. So I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. As always, there may be some swearing and some discussion of adult subjects. Just a note if that's not for you. Here's Jenny Godfrey. Thank you so much for being with us, Jenny. I think we should just get straight to the book because it's absolutely fantastic. The List of Suspicious Things and it is your debut novel. And it's this incredibly immersive story of the community during the Yorkshire Ripper murders in the late 1970s. And we're going to get into all of that. But I wanted to start by asking you, because I think it was partly inspired by your own connection with the area, if you could tell us a bit about that and where it came from. I was born in a little town called Batley, which is in West Yorkshire. And we lived there until I was 10 years old. And then we moved to the dreaded down south. And it's a time in my life that actually I don't think about very often until two or three years ago I watched it was a BAFTA winning documentary called the Yorkshire Ripper Files about that time in Yorkshire but also and particularly about the misogyny involved in the police hunt for the Ripper and about the community at the time And I watched it enthralled. I just remember feeling like I was back there. It reminded me of so much about that time. It also reminded me of the fact that my dad knew Peter Sutcliffe. So the day that he was caught is one of the most vivid memories of my childhood in that I remember us all sat watching the television and my dad saying, but I know him. And he repeated it over and over again in his shock. And I just remember thinking, wow, he got so close to our family. And those two things, watching that documentary, remembering that moment that Peter Sutcliffe was caught, just made me want to write about that time in Yorkshire's history. I mean, this is such a heavy subject to write about, especially given that it is so close to home. Was there anything about the subject matter when you started writing that gave you pause, that made you think, this is too real, this is too huge? Yes, lots. (laughs) I actually intended, when I started, to write a much darker 
book, much more of a crime feel and very much was going to be more focused on the darker elements. But the book had ideas of its own, if that doesn't sound too woo-woo and annoying. And it just took a different shape. It became about something really quite different. And I started to lean into that and realise that with all the darkness of that time, there is hope to be found and light to be found. And that's what the book ended up being about. It doesn't sound annoying and woo-woo, but I do want to get into it because that sense of books writing itself isn't uncommon among people who, who write successfully and manage to get things published. But what was that actually like? Give me give me a story of, of it coming out on the page. So I think when I really realised that's what the book was about was actually on a course, a Curtis Brown creative course, where you had to kind of write extracts and post them up on a forum and people would give you feedback. And all the feedback that I got picked out the warmth, the humour and the elements of community. I almost didn't realise that they were there. And I realised that that's what was most important about the book and started to really build that in and focus on those areas. I remembered things from my childhood and transposed them into the book. There's a particular scene where Miv, who is the main character, is sat watching the nine o'clock news with her family. And a policeman comes onto the screen and talks about there having been another murder. And he uses the word prostitute. It was a prostitute who was murdered. When I was maybe eight or nine years old, that was me watching that television, hearing the word prostitute, never having heard it before and being a curious child said to my dad what's a prostitute he replied after pausing for a few minutes said oh a prostitute is someone who helps the police and I took that as the truth and thought that was the truth for quite some years (laughs) Um, But it's those kinds of scenes from childhood that became about something quite different. I feel like part of the reason why the book is so cosy is because we hear it a lot through the voice of Miv, who is, you know, early secondary school, cusp of adolescence. And what I found so charming is that you really successfully managed to inhabit a voice of a child. It's done rarely particularly well in books I find but there were certain touches that you managed to put in things like referring to the big light which just centered it in this kind of glorious naivety was that easy for you was it another case of going through your memories like did you have to check certain things I have never really grown up (laughs) so it was really easy for me to inhabit the voice of a child genuinely. Having said that, I did have to do a lot of research about the 1970s and virtually immersed myself in that time and in the cultural 
symbols and signs of that time to the extent that the room that I'm in now was virtually papered with images of adverts from the time, of newspaper articles from that time. It helped that I was a child during the 1970s, although I was much younger than Miv. But immersing myself in that world, plus the fact I've never really grown up, really helped. It's so interesting to hear you say that and in sort of crime novel fashion have kind of all these documents around you because I think you know I wasn't around in the 70s but it 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 does feel very real and part of that is because for all of the comfort in the narration you do not shy away from the heaviest of topics you know we there is a strong narrative line about a family who are victims repeatedly of racism how did you bring that in So I felt that it was really important to make sure that that was in the novel. The reason being that at that time in the UK, the National Front were a massive threat. And particularly in that area of Yorkshire as well. It was culturally acceptable to be racist and to use racist language. And to not include that in the book would have felt like, A, I was whitewashing, but B, like I was missing a whole chunk of what life was like at that time. And one of the things I did really want the book to feel like was, yes, there was this threat from this serial murderer killing women, but there were worse threats much closer to home. And that was definitely, for me, one of the worst threats. I wanted to reflect the very real challenges of the time, the challenges of of the place, while at the same time showing hope, showing community, showing that there was a, a way through, through human connection. So yes, I did think about it, but I also really wanted to make sure that this was a an authentic slice of life. I would love to hear more about your process as a novelist, Jenny. So can you tell us a bit about your career before you became a writer and what made you decide to transition towards writing a novel? Sure. Well, if you'd asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have 100% have said an author. That's all I wanted to be. That's all I wanted to do. I spent a lot of time with my little exercise books, writing stories, but I also read all the time to the extent that my mum took me to the doctor because she was worried that I was reading too much and not sleeping enough. Wow. (laughs) And it was hilarious. The doctor said... This is the first time I've ever had anyone brought to me with the issue of them reading too much. (laughs) Like, go away, (laughs) let her read. So I was a total bookworm. And eventually I did go to university and study English. But being an author and being a writer just didn't feel like it was a pathway that was open to me or to somebody like me. And like so many people, I just kind of gave up on the dream. And eventually I went to work in HR. 
And I had, I suppose, a midlife crisis where I just thought, oh, I've got to where I want to get to. And it doesn't bring me happiness. It doesn't bring me contentment. And so I did what everyone says you should not do, which is I gave up the day job. Luckily, I was able to take voluntary redundancy. And I decided that during the time that I had in terms of I could kind of live off my redundancy money, that I would do the thing I'd always wanted to do, which is write a book. And then I never went back. And here we are recording a podcast. (laughs) The culmination of it all. (laughs) Yeah, I would say the podcast is probably not the the lead here. You sold a book to Penguin in a whirlwind preempt and it's now a major debut release. It doesn't happen to everyone who gives up their job to write. What was that moment like? What was that phone call like? The word I use and I overuse it is surreal because basically my agent had emailed me that morning and said, oh, look, Jenny, I've decided to send your book out to editors a couple of days early. We basically planned for it to be a couple of days later because I want to give editors the weekend to read it. And I didn't even fully read the email because my mum had been taken into hospital that day. So I was really focused on, I need to be there. I drove to where my mum lives, drove to the hospital and went to see her. And on the way back, so I was driving down the motorway and Nell's name came up on my screen and I answered the phone and she said, are you driving? (laughs) With a very unfamiliar tone for Nell. And I said, yes, I am. She said, could you pull over, please? I've got some news. And within, I think it was eight hours of the book going on submission, we had our first offer. That is incredible. I know. (laughs) I mean, it is testament to what an amazing agent Nell is. And the next day, I basically spent the day between my mum in the hospital and the hospital car park having calls with various editors to help me make a decision about which one to go with. Jenny, you are a very generous and supportive reader of your peers' work as well as a great writer. And I can attest to that because you and I have read each other's work before. Um, And it's always a pleasure to have work read by you and to see your passion for other writers. How important is a wider writing community to you and how you write? Oh, hugely. I always say I'm a reader first and a writer second. So my life is books. That's my hobby. It's my profession. Um, I also work seasonally in Waterstones. And I feel really strongly about supporting other authors, especially because I began this process knowing nothing about publishing and knowing nothing about the processes and having no connections in the business. And I have been incredibly lucky, but that is because I've had people along the way just helping me or supporting me or telling me not to give up or telling me I'm on to something. 
And in those moments where you might want to give up, I have kept going thanks to their support. And I feel really strongly about doing the same for other people, especially when, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, Charlotte, but I remember reading your work on our Curtis Brown course and just thinking, wow, she's got something. She is really onto something and somebody Aww. needs to tell her that <laughs> like somebody did to me. Oh, Jenny, that is so nice. It was honestly, it was it was such a pleasure <laughs> when we were on that course together. It was so great. And I think on that particular course, you were in the middle of writing or just maybe just begun writing your second novel. And I really wanted to ask you how that's going. I feel so privileged to have been able to read some early, very enticing snippets from it. But how is that book two going? Has it been a difficult process? It has been hell. (laughs) Um, And I can say that now because I'm sort of out the other side of it, I think. I think that, and I don't want to sound like, oh, my diamond shoes are too tight. But I think having a kind of whirlwind first book means that expectations on myself, um, really high on my second book. And I found it so difficult to not be self-conscious, for starters, but also writing that second book, thinking about what, what Nell's reaction would be or what my editor's reaction would be. That is a really stifling and paralysing mindset. The other thing I found really challenging was as I started to write the second book, the first book has gone out to early readers in the form of proofs and via NetGalley. And of course, you start getting reviews. Now, I have been, again, incredibly lucky. My early reviews um, on NetGalley have been fantastic. Reading them, I could feel myself thinking, right, well, I need to write more like that, more like the people who are reading the list of suspicious things want. And I found that almost every word was torture. So I did a few things. The first is I stopped reading reviews, which I shouldn't have ever read them, but that's just human nature. But I now, for the last maybe three or four months, I haven't read a review on NetGalley and Goodreads. And to every author listening, I would highly recommend it to not read them. That has really freed up some creative space in my brain. But I've also virtually mainlined every book, every podcast on creativity I can find. And I found in particular Elizabeth Gilbert to be incredibly helpful. Not only Big Magic, the book, but the Magic Lessons podcast. I've also found incredibly helpful in freeing my mind up and writing without expectation. As a consequence of that, I'm now 20,000 words into my second book and I know its shape. So I feel like, okay, I am actually going to write a second book. And by the way, it was in doubt at some points along this process whether I'd ever write another book. But now I know I'm going to. I love all of that because we frequently ask our guests, like, what challenges have you faced in writing? And and you've just answered that. But during that process, and indeed with the first one as well, did you develop a writing routine? If you didn't have full-time 
work or a corporate nine to five, presumably you could devise your time as you wished. Did you do that? I did. And I am maybe because of years of working in an office and having a corporate job, I'm incredibly ordered and structured. So I treated and still do treat writing as my job. So I have a certain time by which I need to be at my desk, no matter whether I feel inspired or not inspired. I have a a kind of two hours before lunch, two hours after lunch, I am at my desk producing something, no matter the quality. I am not one of those writers who produces thousands of words a day. I have a limit in terms of my creative energy, but also the amount of time I can sit in front of a screen. So my maximum is four hours a day, unless I am in the flow and it's just happening for me. What is it that keeps you writing even when it seems impossible? What keeps you going? It's a compulsion. But the thing I think that most keeps me going is when you are lost in your words and time passes and you have no idea how long you've been in front of a screen, you've no idea how many words you've done, but you have disappeared into the work. That for me, I suppose, it's almost like a high I chase. It's that feeling of the words living and breathing and being part of them. For me, that's a feeling like no other. And the more I can get that feeling, the more I want to write. Ah, there's just something so infectiously exciting about a debut novelist launching their work into the world and with so much goodwill behind it, isn't there? Yeah, and Jenny is such a great advocate for authors and the importance of being part of a literary community as well. Thank you so much to Jenny Godfrey for speaking to us. The List of Suspicious Things is published by Hutchinson Heinemann. While we're here, we should talk about the In Haste Substack. Alice, I don't know about you, but I have been obsessed with the conversations that are going on over there. And I wanted to read you one of the amazing messages that really made me laugh, actually, from one of our subscribers, Tansy at Times and Seasons. And she says, this is just what we all need, a little dose of reality. What stopped me writing this week? Two small children who will not sleep more than 10 minutes after I have woken. Doesn't matter that I wake at 4.30am to steal some time. They're there. Now, as someone who also has two small children, I really felt that <laughs> really resonated with me. <laughs> but then she also says, what's kept me going? Writing feels like the only thing that is just mine right now. And I desperately need something that's just for me. Yeah, it's a relatable vibe. I love that so much. Charlotte, I want to read you one from Lorene, I think. Sorry, Lorene, if I got your name wrong. She writes under A Handmade Garden and she said... This time last week, I was on my last good nerve and battling myself every word, five stories with stupid deadlines. Much drama, even more whining and gooey and self-pity. Today, I will file those stories. And honestly, they're good. None of the blood and gut shows up on the page. If only I could remember that the nasty is a part of the process, sometimes a great deal more than other times. Thank you for inventing this lifeline. Oh, wow. The blood and guts, that really sums it up, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. The reality of writing is what we're all about with all its highs and lows, its blood and guts and everything else. 
And if you haven't joined us on Substack yet, do come and check it out. <laughs> We've got exclusive extras, new writing and bonus podcast content for subscribers, as well as more exciting things to be part of coming soon. Head to inhaste.substack.com or check the show notes to find out more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you can. It really helps other people find us. Join us next time when our guest is Thomas Morris. There was something really freeing about it, about getting into some of those feelings that I was trying to write about directly from a skew. And by taking myself by surprise, I ended up getting into some of the oceanic feelings <laughs> I'd been kind of suppressing for about 30 years. In Haste is produced by Holly Fisher for Hasty Productions. Our music is by Maria Chiara Argero with graphic design by Alicia Fernandez. Hold up. 